This is Listen Up, Home Buyers, the only podcast offering home buying advice and tips from true buyer agents. And now, here's your host, Victoria Ray Henderson. My next guest for Listen Up, Home Buyers is the owner and president of Buyer's Edge, an exclusive buyer brokerage in Bethesda that opened its doors 29 years ago. Buyer's Edge only works with home buyers and serves buyers in Virginia, Maryland, and Washington, D.C. My guest was one of the first members of the National Association of Exclusive Buyer Agents, or NABA, when it was formed back in the mid-90s. It is a real pleasure to talk to Stephen Carpenter Israel on the podcast. Welcome, Steve. Hi, Beck. Yeah, well, I think we need to give some background. So Steve and I know each other really well because my husband, Marshall, and I bought our house with Buyer's Edge back in, I think it was 1997. And I love the experience so much and the business model that when I wanted to switch up careers, I asked Steve if I could work with him and he said yes. <laughs> and it's been great. Yeah. <laughs> it's been fun and, we've had more, and we've had Marshall for even longer. So I know, 18 been, years. Been, yeah. yeah. yeah so. You know, uh, Steve, obviously 29 years. I mean, it's been basically your whole real estate career, right? Uh, close. <laughs> I actually kind of grew up in the business because my father was a real estate appraiser. And so I got my license, you know, when I was right out of high school before I even went to college. So I've had my license for a long time, longer than I've even been doing the exclusive buyer brokerage business. Oh, so, wow. I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so, so and why? I'm not even going to tell you how many years because it's just embarrassing. <laughs> Hey, you know, you're still here. That's the good thing. <laughs> right. So, so, so why did you, why did you think of this exclusive buyer brokerage? I mean, it wasn't really on the map so much. It wasn't yeah. even on anybody's radar in real estate. What made you come up with thinking, yeah, I just want to work with home buyers? Well, it's, you know, it was kind of an interesting ride for me because when I got out of college, I went to work in the commercial construction business for a number of years. Um, both uh, working for a kind of a mid-sized company building, you know, shopping centers and all this other stuff, and then on my own for a while. Um, and I love the construction business. Um, and, uh, and I was also, you know, I still had my real estate license. So I was occasionally doing deals where I was helping people buy or, and I listed one or two houses when I was really young. Uh, and my wife, Wendy, uh, was actually working in the real estate business uh, as a traditional agent. At the time, and in 1989 and 90, the commercial construction market just crashed and burned. And, yeah. um, and we were, uh, you know, we had our first house, we had our first kids. Oh, God, <laughs> and yeah. we were, you know, and we were in a position where, fortunately, I was able to, uh, to look at other options. And, and, uh, and one of my friends was buying a house in Colorado and using, uh, an exclusive buyer broker and I'd never heard of it. And he kept calling me and asking me about this, you know, how this would yeah. work. And I thought it was fascinating. And so yeah. I literally got on a plane about six months later and went out and met Barry Miller, who was one of the early, early guys in the business. So what city and, was he in, in Colorado? Uh, he was in Boulder. Boulder. Um, and I went out and, uh, and met with him and, um, just to kind of check it out because I thought it was so cool and he had done a great job for my friend. And so, uh, and I, you know, it was, it was an interesting leap of faith, but I decided at that point that uh, with my construction and real estate appraisal backgrounds, you know, it just was a great fit for me personally uh, to represent buyers. 
Yeah. So, so when you, when you opened your doors, um, you know, what did, what did other uh, local brokerages think? I mean, did you have to keep explaining what you were doing all the time in every transaction? <laughs> yeah, it was, fun. it was, it was quite a time because, you know, there was, <laughs> NABA was not even started, right? And so right. there was no national association. There was no kind of, you know, there was no template for how to do this. Uh, and so uh, we just knew that we thought it was a great idea. And, you know, and, and we were just dedicated to the consumer side of it and to making sure that people got all the right information. And in a way, I think that, um, you know, there was certainly a lot of pushback from, uh, from other brokers in the area, but we were also, it was such a, you know, such a bizarre thing for them that they just thought that we would be a total flash in the pan right? and be gone within, you know, within months, if not a couple of years. Right. Um, and so it, it, no one, they really didn't pay that much attention to us. And they were, right. you know, and plus, you know, my family had been in the real estate business. And so, uh, and Wendy too. So people knew our names. And yeah. So it wasn't like we were that, you know, it wasn't like we were total fly by nighters. Right, right. You had already been introduced to that, that all those people in the business and you were just yeah. kind of taking a, taking a different turn. You know, yeah. I want to, I want to kind of dive into that just a little bit more. So, you know, because to me that, that is like a critical piece of the whole idea of exclusive buyer brokerage. So why, why did you think it was a good idea? I mean, you know, your friend well, was it's, older. It's, it's, yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting because because Wendy was doing traditional agency, you know, we were kind of talking about talking about the business a lot. Yeah. And um, and, you know, and she and I and, and our friends who were all buying our first houses were just kind of you know, we were just amazed at how wrong it all seemed yeah. um, that we were. You know, we were just everybody was basically being led down this path of you know, don't worry about who's giving you information or not giving you information or what's being, you know, think, you know, you just felt like you were always, something was always being withheld from you as the buyer. And at that point, all of our friends were buying, no one was selling anything. Right. So, yeah, everybody was young. So, right. So we were all up against the same thing and it just seemed crazy. And interestingly, a lot of my friends, because they knew that I had good basic knowledge, kept asking me to come in and look at their houses no one was doing even home inspections at the time. No way. Yeah. Are and you so kidding? We, no. And so we were, you know, people were basically, it was really caveat emptor. You know, wow. it was absolute buyer beware. No one was giving you anything. There were no disclosures of any kind. Wait a second. So, this, is in, this is in the 80s or? In, or? The, in the early, in the, in really in 1990. 90, you know, just okay. Before, just before we started. Um, and so, uh, so there was just kind of a shock. It was, Honestly, it was pretty shocking, you know, it, it, the, and, and plus there was a lot of consumer movement at the time. You know, people were starting to really dig into consumer issues. Yeah. And this one was just right in your face. If you were, you know, you're 30 yeah. something, you're buying yeah. your first house, you've got your babies, you know, you're just like, yeah. what is going on? Here? Right. Right. And so, um, so with all that, you know, it just seemed like it made sense. And Wendy, you know, Wendy had been successful in the business and we still had, you know, we still had the wherewithal to basically start something new because my construction business was, you know, was still viable. Although, you know, it was, it was, I could see the writing on the wall that the right. next five years were not going to be great. And so we transitioned and, uh, and started the business together. Um, and Wendy, Wendy basically bailed on her 
uh, traditional side and yeah. came over right away and we, uh, we jumped into the business. So, you know, why do you think, um, because this business model, in my, my opinion, when I learned about it back in the late 90s, um, it's just so, I want to use the word pure, because it's just kind of straightforward. It takes a no-brainer to figure it out. Why do you think, you know, so often we get clients, uh, home buyers who come to us because they've read a book, and but yet the regular consumer who doesn't do their homework before buying a home, they don't know that NABA exists. Yeah. Why do you think, why? Why is that? <clears throat> well, I mean, I think that it, you know, it, it really goes back, you know, it really is, you can point the finger at traditional brokerage firms because they have no interest in, ha in you know, in having the business essentially be split in two. Right. Where companies would represent buyers and companies would represent sellers. But in theory, you know, this is exactly what should happen. And um, is that, you know, from a legal perspective, it's crazy that, that somebody can represent both sides of a transaction or one it company is. can represent both sides of a transaction. Right, right. You know, lawyers aren't allowed to do it. Accountants aren't allowed to do it. You know, no, no one does it. You know, yeah. it's, it's just wrong on so many levels. And I think that, um, so I think that the National Association of Realtors is basically all, you know, it was started by and run by companies that do listings and it still is. Yeah. So th there's no motivation unless it was done on a, you know, on a, on a regulatory level. There's no motivation for them to ever split up the business because they get both sides of the transactions on, you know, on so many deals. Um, it's still amazing how many you know, deals go down that way. I know. Hey, could you yeah. just kind of break down in, first of all, Buyer's Edge uh, serves people in Virginia, the district, and Maryland. I was working right. the other day with um, uh, a young lawyer, actually, in the district, and he said, how many people do you end up with in D.C. as opposed to Virginia? And for people who don't know the geographic area, we are so close that frequently, in fact, I have three right now, we set up searches that cover, you know, right inside the Beltway, Virginia, Maryland, and DC. And it's kind of a, you know, it, it's kind of a flushing out of what works for the client as to where they end up. Um, right. But could you explain how the difference is uh, with, with representation in Virginia, DC, and Maryland? Well, uh, you know, in D <laughs> you know, each jurisdiction, and it's true, uh, basically all 50 states, I mean, everybody has all kinds of different stuff. And in Maryland right. and DC, um, you know, there are different disclosures uh, for in Maryland, you're, you know, you have to, um, you have to tell people who you're representing and, but you actually, you actually do that via having a contract. You must have a contract with your buyer client. Mm -hmm. So you actually have to have a contract with your buyer and a, and a disclosure that says that the buyer knows that you're working for them. Well, I mean, I, it, this is like the biggest bunch of nonsense I've ever heard because <laughs> right. the only person that really needs to know who you're working for is the other guy. Right. Right. And so in D.C., where they actually have it right, um, D.C. basically says that if you're n you have to disclose to the person you're not representing. Right. Who you uh, work and, for. Yeah. And, and Virginia doesn't even basically have any disclosures because it's kind of a non-disclosure state they don't have any seller disclosure forms they don't have any anything but they do mm -hmm. they do basically say that you should tell this you know tell everybody who you're working for right um, but it, it, it's a convoluted mess um, yeah. and, and interestingly it, it, it's one of the reasons that you know that nationally it, it, it's it's appalling how many how few people how few home buyers understand 
who their buyer, who their agent really represents, or the person that they're working for even represents. Right. And a lot of it is exactly for this reason is because it's a convoluted mess. Oh, I and know. Every, and every state's different, but you know, I would say that that the only people who you know, the only people in the business who who are able to get through that part of the process, the disclosure process, right? You know, about who's being represented and, and make it clear is us. No, I know. You know, I know. I mean, every, everyone else is trying to explain how they can have two agents that sit right next to each other. They can be husband and wife. One can represent the buyer. One can represent the seller. And they can yeah. tell you that there's no, you know, yeah. there's no, there's no problem. Right. And it's just, and it's just nonsense. It um, is nonsense. I mean, they, you know, yeah. um, you know, um, could you also kind of talk a little bit about how, like in Maryland, uh, a, a single brokerage can represent buyer and seller, um, what about the district? Yeah, they can in the district too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so essentially, um, you know, they can have uh, two people that are on the same team, uh, two people that sit next to each other in the office, two people who happen to be in different offices of the same company, but they can all, but one can represent the buyer, one can represent the seller. And so this is where it gets just really crazy because Everybody goes, well, that's not dual agency because the buyer is being represented by one agent and the list and the seller is being represented by somebody else. And the point is, is that, and this is where the public doesn't understand it and is unlikely to ever really understand it, is that their contract, the buyer and the seller's contract is not with an individual agent, right? It's with the broker of the firm. It's with the company and the person who's responsible is the broker owner essentially or the managing broker of that firm. And so the agents are agents of the broker. <clears throat> right, me. right. The agents are the agents of the broker. They represent the broker. They don't represent individually uh, the client. So they're agents of the firm. They're not even in a position to be able to contract because they don't have a license that allows them to. A right. lot of agents have only been licensed for a month or two. Yeah. So they don't have the capacity to actually do the contract. Only the broker does, which means that the broker is representing both parties, and that's called dual agency. And so no matter how, no matter how you split it up, whether you're allowed to do it or you have to disclose it or you don't disclose it or whatever, yeah, it, it, it's a, it's a mess. You could um, see you could see why. Um, I mean, I look back on my own experience. You can see why people who are busy with their careers and busy with their children and all of these things, why this would just be too much. You know, it's like, oh my god, okay, I give up. You know, I give up. I'll just take whatever route is the easiest for me because. Right, and I think people could care less. A lot of yeah. a lot of times, people are like, I don't care. I'm going with Susie. Right. You know, I'm going to go with Dave. You know, I'm, I'm going to go with the person who someone else recommended or I found, you know, via, you know, I walked into an open house and they seem nice. Um, <laughs> right, and right. so, so literally the, 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 the public doesn't understand what the issues are. And, 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 and arguably, right, there are a lot of very, very smart, very good, honest people in the business on every side. Sure. Um, and, we work and, with them and, all the time. Yeah, we, we all do. And we have feel like there's a good professional community and all of those things. But the problems are, you know, it is, you know, the issues are when problems arise. That's and what so, I wanted you to talk a little bit more yeah, about. And so, you know, so we kind of have, you know, these, you know, these kind of things that we talk about with clients. And it's not really to scare people. It's just to illuminate what, you know, what some of the issues are. And so, <clears throat> you know, when you're negotiating with someone, 
and their company is working on both sides of the transaction and you're trying to get the lowest price on the best terms for the property, including, you know, having inspections and doing all these other, you know, doing all the due diligence stuff. And they're also representing the other side of the deal. Then they're in a position where they're already under contract with the seller to get the seller the highest price on the best terms. Right. And now, exactly. that, now that broker, you know, is, you know, in the position where they're supposed to get the lowest price on the best terms for some buyer who's being represented by some other agent in the office. So right. it's a mess from the beginning. It is. But, it really... but what, what does happen too is that not only, you know, are there issues about who, you know, whose information are they going to disclose and whose motivations, your financial stuff. You know, the bigger problems are really that if you've been working with an agent who's, the, you know, who, who does both. You've been working with them as a buyer's agent. You've been working with them for months. They know everything about you. Yeah. You know, they, they know exactly how far you're willing to go, how much cash you have, what, you know, what you think about the whole inspection process and how you're willing to, you know, how far you're willing to go in a, in a bidding war. And, uh, and all of a sudden they get the listing that you want. <laughs> yeah. Right? right. Right. You know, and then they, you know, and then it's like, Hey, by the way, I've got this new listing coming up. Mm-hmm. And if, if, you know, it, when I, you know, I'll, I'll, if you want to go see it, that's great. Uh, I'll let you work with someone else in the office. Oh, and by the way, I know everything about you. And oh, by the way, I know everything about you. So, right. you know, that's a disaster. It and is that, a that's, disaster. That's, yeah, that's just one. But, you know, some of the other ones are really interesting. Or, you know, and this has happened, in, as you know, it's happened multiple times in our office where, you know, there's huge storms that come through in between the time when you're under contract and the time that you're going to settle the transaction and a basement floods or a mm-hmm. tree hits the house or something bad happens. Yeah. Or a sewer and, line erupts in the basement. Well, and that, you know, that happened <laughs> on one of my deals. Yes, right? exactly. And literally, so the sewer line erupts in the basement and there's two feet of sewage in the oh, basement. Oh, and, God. You know, in a house that was basically pristine. And the brokerage firm representing the seller, you know, they're basically taking the seller's position that uh, my client has to buy the house, mm-hmm. that they're going to they're going to clean it up, uh, and then and then my client has to buy the house. Right. And you know, and, and essentially, it you know, I'm you know, I'm explaining to my client. I say, well, you know, there's no way that you have to buy the house. Uh, right. Because you know, because they're not selling you what you bargained for, which was a house that was in pristine condition and right. never had a sewer backup. Exactly. Um, and so you don't have to buy the house, and you know you should be able to get out of it. But you're going to have to talk to a lawyer. And of course they did, and eventually they got out. But it was awful. Oh, they I know. Tried to force our clients to stay in a deal that that had know, sewage was, in the basement. Yeah, and there was no <laughs> way that the buyer was going to stay. In the deal. Oh, but that was God. their responsibility. So you can imagine. Right. Yeah. Imagine what happens. Yeah. If the buyers, the so-called buyer's agent, is also working for that firm. Oh, I mean, they have a vested interest to keep you in the deal as a buyer because Not only that, they're, they're, they may tell you that you can't get out. Well, that's true. Right. Right. <laughs> you know. You know. It's funny. I don't know if you remember this, but years ago when I first started working with with you, um, you one day you were in the middle of some crazy thing, and I'm kind of watching you like, oh my god, what a mess. And you said, I can't wait to see you in the trenches in this stuff, you know. And meanwhile, right. I'm watching you deal with this, going, oh god. Well, but, it is a trench. You know, I mean, yeah. we, we, do, we do, you know, people think that, 
you know, that, that you know, uh, most of the time nothing goes wrong. And, right, you know, right. But the truth of the matter is, is that I, I, you know, I always ask my clients or people that I'm meeting with, especially at the beginning, I was like, you know, so you came and you found us, you know, this exclusive buyer brokerage firm. We're really happy that you're here. Did you do it because of, you know, I'm sure you did it because of what? And a yeah. lot of times the answer is because we've heard all these horror stories, right? Right. Right. I, you know, I'm like, how many people do you know who bought something and they, and something wasn't, you know, was right. You know, something right. didn't come up that, that either raised the hair on the back of their neck or there was some real issue, you know, I mean, yeah. but whatever, you know, when you, when you, you know, we're basically the only game around where you're a hundred percent sure that your client, your, your agent's going to represent your interest. Right. I mean, right. no one else can offer you that. Yeah, I mean, we're the only ones who advocate 100%. I'll never forget, there was a, a, a client who came in once and and told me, um, you know, a list of horrible experiences that she, she, this person had had with other other agents. Right. And this person happened to be in the military telling me, you know, if I see another split level and I'm telling them I don't want to see them, and then, you know, she turns to me and goes, I'll shoot somebody. And, you know, you want, you <laughs> want to like, work with me? <laughs> yeah, you're like, I don't know if I need this. I know. Well, it was so funny because when she uh, when she left, you know, we said, "Oh yeah, we'll work with you." Now she's a friend, but um, right. when she left the office, Marshall looked over at me and said, "I'm kind of scared." <laughs> yeah, I don't know about this. I don't know about this, but it ended up being a fantastic experience because basically she just wanted someone to advocate for her. You know, right, exactly. just be straight with her. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm talking to you, February 2020. Um, can you give me a, a quick overview of what the market's like right now? Uh, the market in D.C. is, is uh, I would say, it is, uh, it is impacted greatly by low inventory. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it makes it hard for homebuyers. Uh, you know, interest rates are low, so a lot of people want to be in the market, um, you know, and they want to buy their, you know, buy a house or move from one house to the next. But the fact of the matter is there are a lot of, there are a lot of buyers out there, not a lot of listings out there. Yeah, um, and interestingly, I also think that the market is is wildly divided um, between the properties that are uh, are accessible, the you know metro accessible, yep. walkability. You know these things are are unbelievably powerful in our market where. Yeah. Um, with a minute that you go outside of the beltway or to places that aren't easily accessible to, um, to, you know, to markets and, uh, and public transportation and, you know, parks and recreation, the minute that you're in these kind of, you know, exosuburban communities, um, it, it, it really changes. Oh, and it so, does. You know, you go outside the beltway. And the market, which dropped down 15 or 20 percent or more in 2007, 2008, has never really recovered. I know. You know, it's come back some, but yeah, but but, but the but so many people don't want that product right That's now. That's right. That's right. Uh, maybe it'll change. I mean, I think that it's quite possible <clears throat> that it will. But the, but the drive for everyone is to be in town or metro accessible. And yeah. So, it's really the you know the kind of haves and haves nots you know, I know. It, uh, it's very very different 
Yeah. yeah, it really is. It really is. Some of our metro stations have a lot of parking. So that has been working with some of the people that Marshall and I work with in terms of like, okay, so, you know, we're not, we're not finding what you want right inside the beltway where you can walk sure. to the metro, but you can drive to, for example, the Glenmont Metro, which has two huge parking garages. Right. And, you know, if your company compensates for that kind of thing, it, it can offset it. But, you know, it, right. it, yeah, it's really tough, really tough. Yeah, it really is. And I think that, you know, driving to the metro is fine too, but I think that a lot of people are also, you know, walkability has become something that just didn't, wasn't even, on the, reg, wasn't even on the register 20 or 30 years ago. I know, I know. And I, mean, I don't People want to be able to walk to, not just to something, they want to be able to walk to a lot of things. Oh, yeah. You know, they yeah. want to be able to walk to shopping and just go for a walk and have access to, you know, bike trails and yeah. walking trails and, all, you know, all this other stuff. Yeah, it's, it's just yeah. a quality of life issue. And, you know, I think that there's just interesting things in the market today, you know, and, and there's been a lot of hubbub about, you know, what are deemed to be pocket listings. And it's problematic and something that the industry is trying to deal with. The National Association of Realtors is basically trying to get everybody in line with not selling properties in-house, you know, trying to, you know, without putting them out for public, you know, to Wait, the public. Right, which is the definition uh, of a pocket listing. Right. For and those so, of you who don't know. Yeah, and, and so there's all these twists to it. You know, people mm -hmm. are, you know, they're allowing people to put up listings in the, in the multiple listing service and saying, coming soon. But they're not supposed to uh, actually let anybody into that listing until it's available to everybody. Mm -hmm. but, but the truth is, is that, you know, th th these kind of pocket listings and coming soon things are kind of, they're, they're, essentially they're ripe for abuse. Mm -hmm. And they have been abused. And I don't think that general public understands how damaging that can be. Um, yeah. and, and, and so what I, the pitch is, you know, for a listing company is, hey, we have information on all these listings that come up in our office and you'll have access to them before anybody else will. And, and right. this, that right there, it's like, why in the world would you think as a buyer, oh, hey, that's a great idea. They have something just for me and only for me. First of all, <laughs> it, it, sounds, it sounds like a fair housing violation. Right. And also remember who they represent. Right. right. They represent the seller. So they're inevitably, you know, their objective is to get the highest price on the best terms. And exactly. you're not, it, and then it's not an arm's length transaction, right? Because you're walking just, right into it. They're feeding it right to you at a price that they may not even be contemplating that it's worth that much. They're just yeah. saying, hey, if you want to pay a million for it, go ahead. Right, uh, right. And so, uh, and you're right. And, and this is the issue that, you know, that we've talked about in our office. And I think that is, is not out there as much as it should be, is that, this also is, you know, is absolutely ripe with discrimination mm -hmm. because you're, you're essentially saying that I'm, you know, the listing agent and that little brokerage firm gets to decide who sees the property and who doesn't. And what is and their so, criteria for that? And what's their criteria? And the point is, even if they don't have any criteria, they go, right. well, we would tell anyone who's associated with someone in our office, we'd be happy to do that. Well, mm -hmm. the point is, is if this is a little, uh, you know, a little teeny office that's, uh, you know, that's all Catholic enclave, right, in suburbia, then in fact, they're not showing it to anybody of color, uh, or, you know, of uh, anybody who's of any other religion with their firm because they don't know anybody. Oh, right? it's, so it's not all good. their clients just happen to be, you know, happen to be just like them. And so that's who's going to find out about those pocket listings or those listings that are coming soon. Not anybody else. Yeah. 
And so, um, so I just think that, that everybody needs to take a really, really hard look at, you know, at what they're doing um, to the community by not allowing, you know, public access to every, every listing that, is, that comes up. You know, this is, it, they, it should be widely disseminated. And, and I do think that it, the argument against, you know, doing that is that, you know, occasionally you have a, a client who's, you know, an ex-president or a senator or somebody who has, you know, an extraordinary right. art collection. Oh, sure, sure. And so there are, there are reasons, right, that, right, that people do not want their, they don't want the general public to know that there are properties on the market and yeah. they don't want people marching through their house. And I think everybody gets that. But if, if the listing brokerage firms are promoting that, you know, and saying, yeah. hey, you know, you don't have to have everybody come through. We can cherry pick the people who see your house then it, by its very nature, they're discriminating. And they're not really serving that seller if they're not that sort of um, niche clientele that you just described. No, of course. You know? I mean, I I mean that's that, ridiculous. Well, it's also, you know, it's very interesting because, you know, I can't tell you how many times, you know, we've had clients who are, who are very wealthy clients. Right. Who are from other countries, who are other, you know, race and creed and color and religions, you know, and they're ready, willing and able to buy. Right. And the fact of the matter is, is that there are listings that they never found out about, you know, because the listing companies were just keeping them to their own clientele. Yeah. And, and it's horrible. It is. Uh, so, it's, you know, I, I hope that I hope that, you know, that this movement now by NAR to push for the elimination of pocket listings and try to tighten up all that is is a really good thing. And I hope that they're successful doing it. Yeah, me too. Me too. Well, I'm really glad you found some headphones so we could do this. Yeah. Interview. <laughs> <laughs> I had to go buy them this morning. I don't know what happened to my old ones. I, you know, they just disappeared. Well, Stephen Carpenter Israel, the owner and broker, or owner and president, and, and of course, broker of uh, right. Buyer's Edge, an exclusive buyer brokerage in Bethesda. Thank you so much for joining me, and I'll see you at the office later today. Great fun. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Listen Up Home Buyers, the only podcast offering home buying advice and tips from true buyer agents.